I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's a great pleasure to be doing this, and it's also rather strange. Andrew and I have known each other for almost 43 years. Uh, We first met over a nervous pint of Guinness after a bibliography lecture during our first year as graduate students in Oxford in 1978. And we rapidly became close friends, friends who showed each other work in progress. When Andrew went off to teach at the University of Hull, I rented his very nice little house in Oxford for two years, and then he came back and we shared the house for some time. Um, Andrew, there was a good deal of sort of competitive typing going on. And, <laughs> Andrew bashing away in his room downstairs and me bashing away upstairs and meeting, meeting over the kettle to discuss progress. Um, and I felt our careers, which have been very different in many ways, have also always been very sort of happily intertwined. Over those 43 years, we've had thousands of conversations, but we've never had one in public, um, and certainly not in such an intimate setting as this. Um, it's thrilling to be in one of the the greatest interiors in London, but also slightly intimidating. Um, We're celebrating Andrew's 14th book of poems, Essex Clay, Um, something which is, to me, and I think to anyone who's read it, feels thrillingly innovative, um, but which is also a continuation, and I think perhaps a resolution of something that's been going on in his work over the whole time that I've known him. The sort of central subject is the riding accident um, in which his mother was severely injured, lay for a long time in a coma, um, emerged from that for some years before she died, 40 years ago. And it's a subject which very naturally took hold of Andrew's imagination almost from the day that it happened as a subject. Um, And I feel rather fascinated by that, and it's something that you write about in this poem, your sense, um, as soon as it happened, your recognition that something momentous had happened, and that it was a sort of turning point in your your own life, and you describe it in the the new book as an immediate consciousness of the end of of childhood. It also did something else to your sense about the past up to that moment. Yes, I mean, I think it's something very 
traumatic happens to you at what time of your life which, in which childhood is turning into adulthood, it can make a much more definite break between the two. You were 16 at the time. I was 17, 17. when, it, yeah, that's right, when it happened. Um, and there were things about me that I think with hindsight seemed quite grown up, but there were plenty of things about me which were innocent, childish, inexperienced yeah. at, at least, very inexperienced in all kinds of ways. I grew up in, the, in what was then the, the quite wild still Essex countryside, a thing which doesn't sound like a contradiction in terms now, doesn't really exist in the same way, but was quite, it was quite sort of hairy anyway still yeah. then, in a way that it isn't now. It's all rather sort of spruce and she-she and self-conscious. Um, yeah, come and sit at the front. Um, anyway, I'm trying to say something quite simple in the midst of all this, which is that there was a day in which I felt that my childhood ended. Yes. Um, I mean, I think if the accident happened, hadn't happened, childish life would have sort of broken more naturally into adult life. But as it was, it was much more abrupt than that. And as part of that very decisive sort of switchover moment, I mean, actually, very self-consciously as part of that switchover moment, I can, I vividly remember making a promise to myself that I would remember my life up to that point as well as I could, so that I could both keep my happy childhood, which it largely had been, at least when I wasn't at school, it was happy childhood, intact. But also, of course, in the midst of all that, keep my mum intact in, in some ways. So yes. it was a, a form of, um, it was to do with an idea of preservation. And I think, to kind of slightly extend that same point a little bit, it made me think, that this is rather said with hindsight, but it also made me think that poetry itself was deeply to do with preservation. I've heard people say they think that poems are, are all love poems, um, and they are in a way. But for me, they're much more all elegies, because there's so much to do with preserving things, either in the instant of their happening or in the longer-term past. And I think those, those points are all muddled up together in this. Yes. Can you say to what extent you thought of yourself as a future writer when this accident happened when you were 17? I find it hard to remember that, and perhaps you find it hard to remember too. I certainly had started writing poems, and I took myself pretty pretentiously seriously as a poet, um, and very much wanted to wander around at school with a book of poems ostentatiously sticking out of my coat pocket so that people would know what I was doing. You know. I wasn't just going off to smoke in the woods, I was going to read poetry. And smoke. And smoke, right. So I had some sense of myself in that role, if a role is quite what it is. And I remember the, the whole idea of career's advice happened during my school days, as it perhaps did yes. during yours as well, really for the first time. I and mean, previously people went to school and then sort of wandered off into life and did whatever they did. But um, the day came and at my school, the person who'd perfectly happily been teaching history or something was suddenly the career's advice person. Um, and I can remember being summoned to see this person and him saying, what are you going to do later on, motion? Um, and me saying, I am a poet. <laughs> and, him, and him saying, there's nothing I can do for you. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's fascinating how this understandably important subject um, appears in your work, right, you know, your published work, pretty well right yeah. from the start. Um, your first book, The Pleasure Steamers, which came out in the spring or summer of 1978. That's right. So just before your mother died. Yeah. Um, but already, yeah. you're already um, writing yeah. 
poems which are in effect elegiac about, yeah, about absolutely. her. Yes. Um, there's the wonderful um, A Dying Race, which is sort of addressed to your father, sort of seeing Quite. him going to visit her in Quite. hospital. Um, and there's the poem Anniversaries, uh, four of them, um, where you depict yourself going year after year um, on the anniversaries of this occasion to visit yes. her. Well, that was, I mean, that poem, not that I want to interrupt you, but I, I think that poem perhaps does reveal something that we're trying to say here about how memory works, which is, which is this, that on one hand, I felt that I was sort of growing up, time was passing, I was becoming an adult, all those things, but at the same time, because my mother's life was completely stuck, I mean, she was alive, but only just, as you might say, yes. and she wasn't able to live a life, she was... For the first three years, as you were kindly saying, she was in a coma. And then when she did recover some degree of consciousness, she was able to speak a little bit. But the, her world was extremely small, partly because, as is always the case with people who are in hospital for a long time, there's simply not much life going on beyond the kind of daily routines. And, and there were things that she couldn't understand and couldn't, couldn't absorb. So there was a very paradoxical feel of my life continuing, my growing up happening, and hers being absolutely bogged down in this in the consequences of this accident yes and i think i wanted to write about that in a lot of those poems yeah um, i mean the fascination of it as a, as a sort of live subject is that it, it carries on through 40 years of your writing well, and it keeps on yeah. cha changing as you you view it in a the, the differing perspective offered by your own yes. life i mean of course yeah. there's a bit of me which wants to shake it off and never have to write about it again but it just won't go away no. but i want to ask you know, i will ask you if you think you've sort of got to that point and, and i've had a fascinating few days rereading all andrew's poems and of course you know he was writing about all sorts of other things at the same time but there's um and other themes motifs preoccupations keep emerging um you kept that sort of cluster of early poems about your mother in your first um, selected poems, which is not chronological, but they formed a sort of core of, of the book. Um, and I feel, you know, just as that subject has remained at the core of what you've written and all sorts of other things have been going on around it, uh, sort of 20 years later, so sort of halfway through this story, there's the poem Dead March, um, in which you're addressing the subject and I, I think this must say something about why the, the subject has had such a sort of tenacious hold on you. I'm impertinently going to read it in Please. front of the, the author. Um, the, first, the first stanza is a, is a sort of imaginary dialogue between the poet and, and the dead mother. It's 20 years. It's not. It's 23. Be accurate. Since you were whisked away. I wasn't whisked away. I broke my skull. And I was left to contemplate your life. My life? Ridiculous. You mean my death? You see, you're always with me, even though you're nowhere, nothing, dead to all the world. You interrupt me when I start to talk. You are the shadow dragging at my heels. This means I can't step far enough away to get the thing I want you to explain in focus, and I can't lean close enough to hear the words you speak and feel their weight. Yes. It's a struggle to get things, yes, exactly. to, to, get this, to pin the subject down and deal with it. Quite. I mean, the case, yes, there are things about that poem I feel very un uneasy about, but that central point is one that I would still sort of want to stand by. I mean, yes. that, that is how I felt, and it, and it does mark more or less a halfway point between when the thing happened and, and now. 
I think one of the things that's worth adding into the mix about this is that when I got to, as some of you know, I went to live in America three years ago. <clears throat> I live in Baltimore now and teach at the University of Johns Hopkins. And I felt very strongly when I got to America that I wanted to write about American themes. And I also wanted to stand in the, under the great sort of Niagara deluge of contemporary American poetry and see what it did to my own poems. I mean, to be changed by it if I could let that happen. I wanted to get a new life. I felt that America had given me the chance to do that in a, a most sort of miraculous way, actually. I mean, how many of us have the chance in our early 60s to be given the chance to get a new life? Yes. So I felt not many of us. Old men should be explorers, Eliot says, after all, and he's not wrong, in my view. Anyway, so I went to explore, and I expected to more or less immediately start writing poems about American and Baltimorean subjects. I mean, Baltimore is a very, very screwed up and interesting place, full of subjects, as you might say. But I find myself writing this poem instead of addressing these subjects, partly, I think, because it would have felt impertinent to just sit down and tell the Baltimoreans about what Baltimore was like. And I needed to kind of live there and think about it more. But also because I find myself visited in a way that I absolutely had not anticipated at all by an, ab an absolutely irresistible urge to write about my mum and dad and try and well, I thought initially, lay my ghosts. Mm. I mean, just to kind of make my peace with the past. I'd, I'd left a lot behind, and I wanted to kind of just sort out my, my new relationship to it. As I say, lay my ghosts, lay them to rest. But of course, I realized as I was doing it, and I know that you and I have said this together sort of privately, as it were, so I'm sorry to repeat myself Not to you, but, I, but I, I, I also realized, or came to realize, that what I was actually trying to do was to make my ghosts portable, and take them to America with me, where I could sort of release them. John Ruskin, in one of his essays, says that the reason he couldn't go and live in America is that there are no castles in America, so he wouldn't have anything to look at. Um, but for me, it was much more, my anxieties about going to live there were much more to do with not having any ghosts. Yeah. And I thought that if I could import them and release them somehow through this yeah. poem, then I would have some spectral company in a way that I wanted to, to have while at the same time but feeling that I was a ghost myself, actually. Mm. That, was, that was something that also that I hadn't anticipated happening. I feel very, I mean, it's a word that you and I have often used to each other, I feel very uncanny living in America. And now when I come back to England, as now, I feel uncanny here too. Mm. But it seems quite to suit me. Yes. Well, it's been wonderfully productive. Yes, it um, has. And as Matthew was saying, you've sort of evolved a new way of writing, which I'm sure must take some of its cues from American writers whom you've been yeah, reading. I think they do. I mean, I think there are British writers as well who've exerted a strong influence on it. I was conscious when I finished writing it that David Jones, in parenthesis, is probably in the, in the mix mm. somewhere. I mean, I've, I know, as it were, I, I'm aware that I like, in parenthesis, very much. Very much. I was also aware that I've always been very interested by, though I don't think it's a very successful poem, by Ted Hughes's Gaudete book. It seemed to me that he's kind of onto something there, um, which I don't think that book quite manages to get hold of, actually, but it, it, I felt it was sort of full of promising signs. Yes. I also, in the last few years, have read, been reading a lot of ancient Greek stuff, and I think that's exerted its influence. And I've been reading a lot of Beckett, too, and I think Beckett has been very re releasing yes. for me. I wanted to write a poem which was a mixture, really, of absolutely hurtling, headlong 
being driven by memory attempt to retrieve memory, and at the same time, full of pauses and circlings and steppings back and reconsiderings. And so I took all the punctuation out, and except full stops. I, I put in a lot of white space where I hoped that people would be able to draw breath and feel that they were being encouraged to, to draw breath. In fact, I really think of this poem as a sort of breath thing. I, perhaps I think of poetry as a breath-driven thing now. I feel it. Yes, it, it certainly connects back to very early preoccupations with yours in Frost and Thomas. And Absolutely. To do with the, yeah. the speaking voice, the poetic line. The, yes, the, quite. Uh, well, Thomas, who, whose poems do not look like this on, on the face of it, is somebody for me who is brilliantly alive to the suspense around line endings. I mean, it's, it's yeah. something he's especially good at in, in my in my book. I mean, of course, that's always true of a, a line of poetry that you do kind of peer around the end to see what's coming. But because his poems are so often thing, thoughts that appear still to be happening rather than considered and settled things, there is that extra degree of sort of electric yes. aliveness in, in them. Shall we hear a bit of well, having set it up, I'll probably now disappoint all expectations, but that was certainly, that was the idea anyway. So I'll, re I'll read a bit from the... The first of the three sections. From the first of the three sections. This um, is the one which really revisits the subject of the, the accident of it. That's right. Aftermath. Yes. I mean, I want to say something, you know, before we close about what happens later in the poem, which is a sort of completely new yes. and perhaps resolving yes. element. But, yeah. So the accident has happened, and I've been discouraged by my father for the kindliest reasons not to visit my mum, because um, she's not in a good state. And then I do go and see her. And I'll just read a few pages from this section. He tramps an eternity of grey linoleum with a high polish, hard-looking, but surprisingly cushiony underfoot. Left, right, straight, left, right, straight, 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 from the front door of St. John's to her ward in a Victorian block, squeezed between the incinerator and a laundry room as temporary solution to overcrowding a hundred years ago. He steals himself for a long look at what he has so far only glimpsed through a cordon of doctors and equipment for her shaved head with the stubble no longer summery fair, for the orange and red bruise on her temple, maturing to a dead colour, moleskin, trapped, dusty, for the oxygen tank, chipped silver, like treasure salvaged from a wreck, for her face, her chin-sag shark face, gaga, mouth hinged with saliva. But when he arrives round the last corner, past the nurse's station, into the long ward, he sees none of this. There is, his eyes panic, there is, her bed with her, is this, with her curtain drawn, with her floor-length pale blue cotton curtain twitching and bulging, and black wires, pulleys, when he pokes his head through the slit, is this, yes, but pinned down, why in a scrum, why, pinned down with four nurses, five, and a doctor he must be, white coat, borrow scars above the breast pocket, all of them trying, trying their utmost to weigh her down, while her body refuses, while her whole body leaps like a trout dying in fresh air, arching clear of the bed, slamming down, devilish yellow bubbles now in her mouth, lung froth, 
feet dancing, hands smothering something or strangling, and the one in charge, stethoscope round his neck, red face, black framed glasses, knocked up his nose almost, half twisting round without releasing his weight, not for a second, staring him straight between the eyes, bellowing, not now. Grief, too little a word, no spring lock inside it, primed to snap back to its opposite, the second her eyes open again. Sorrow, the same. Rage, the same. Limbo then. Limbo, and better accept it. Limbo, better stretch out an idea of life itself permanently stretched out, touching its Michelangelo fingertips, just against the outstretched fingers of death, and vice versa. In this way, grief becomes the strange contentment of living in suffering without the possibility of such unhappiness in whatever else remains of life. Grief even providing a peculiar pleasure sometimes, like the buzz a mind feels when a tongue slides over a painful tooth. Grief whispering he will be content to live in a mirror-bright shining steel universe that can never be altered. Yes, I mean, we, we really do get the sense there of it being a, a sort of dramatic yeah. monologue, except with yes. the fascinating thing, of course, which we didn't mention, that it's written in the third person. In the third person. Um, right. And uh, can you say something about that decision and why it was made? Well, as those of you, and I imagine it's most of you who've written anything yourselves, know, and as you certainly know, the great disadvantage potential disadvantage of writing something in the third person is that you lose a kind of quick, intimate, close-up feel to things. But the gain, equally, obviously, is that you get some purchase on the material. So there was that idea. I wanted yeah. to kind of see around the back of things in a way that an I can't. No, I absolutely and, not. And a he, yeah. she yeah. can. Yeah. So there was that. But there was also, and more banally perhaps, um, my very strong sense and not just because I was writing this thing 4,000 miles away from home, or what had been my home, yes. at the age of 310 or whatever I am now, that I'm not the person being talked about here. And I wanted the reader's consideration of that to be part of... Yes. I thought, of, I thought of other memoirists like Isherwood, who, you know, Chris Trace right. writes about himself in the third exactly. person. Yeah. And the fascinating exactly. distance that you can have on yourself. Quite. Right. Yeah. I mean, perhaps it's partly to, to do with this uncanny thing that I was talking about earlier. Yes. Um, Am I really alive? Yeah. It's, it's certainly akin to the, to the, the novelist's free, freedom right. to, make, to make that sort yes. of dis, get that distance advantage on his own. And I expect I learned that from you. No, you <laughs> might have done. Between The Dead March I read earlier and sort of halfway in between that and this, you, you wrote a, a marvellous, very, very rich and vivid prose memoir in the blood, um, which is in effect framed by the accident. The, op the opening right. um, chapter is the day of the accident, and the final <laughs> chapter of the book um, is the, um, the, the, the day after and the, the, exactly. the big hospital. Right. Um, and you make, you express there to your brother, Kit, your that resolution we were talking about at the beginning, that you were going to memorialize everything that had happened right. before. And in effect, the substance of that book is, the, is, is the those memories. Exactly. It is exactly. Um, it's very striking reading that in immediate juxtaposition with 
the account given here because they're quite widely different. Yes, I haven't um, done that. <laughs> um, and, and for instance, Kit, the, the brother figure, is removed from this narrative. Yes. Um, I had the feeling of in this new poem of your homing in on the kind of ultimate essential truth of the matter. Mm. But of course, it's one which, in which all sorts of things have been yes. eliminated and rearranged. Um, and I wondered, I wondered if you could say something about the actual sort of practice of remembering in, in writing and to how much you are truly re- re- remembering. I'm not disparaging what, you, <laughs> what you've done, but how much you're truly remembering these, these moments, the day that you... Andrew went to um, stay with a girl who I think you hoped might be a girlfriend. I did. Who's, uh, <laughs> called Julia, or Juliet in this, yes. this poem. Um, and they were to, to go to a party. The news came through before going to the party, now that there'd been this terrible accident, but they went to the party anyway. And there's a, an element of the, your sort of excitement around her in the prose narrative, but it's very much more sexualized in, the, in this one. And yes. I, f- I feel that there are certain sort of That's essentials that are coming yeah. through. The, the first chapter of In the Blood is called Essex Plow. Right. And this book is called Essex Clay. And it's as if the, well, the, the clay is the, it becomes right. this, this sort of, and you imagine all the, all the incidental details of yeah. your mother's life somehow being swallowed up, yes. by, which is sort of, which is, right. you know, clay as right. the human form and clay right. as death, right. I, I think. Right. Yes. So I feel there's a much stronger sort of Eros and Thanatos thing going on yeah. in this, well, this poem than that there is in the prose good. narrative. And that, yes. and that you've simplified for various you know, yeah. s- yes. important reasons. Quite. I think I wanted to sort of spotlight it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that seemed concentrated, spotlighted. I very deliberately didn't go back and read the, the, the part of the story that I tell in this poem that overlaps with. I wondered, yeah. Because I thought that I would then end up simply sort of trying to versify the previous version, and I just wanted to come at it completely fresh and, yes. and, and new. And I haven't since gone back and looked at it either. So I'm not surprised by what you're saying. Um, and actually, I'm rather pleased that there is some sort of development of my thinking about it. You'd have to be a com- completely disingenuous reader, I think, to think that memoir was Indeed, not sort yeah, of treated in, in some way. Yes. And it's very interesting, isn't it, to think about how writers who are obsessed by one thing or another, Virginia Woolf writing about her mother, Wordsworth writing about the in spots of time in his childhood, going back and back and back and back to it, so that what you end up with is not just somebody cherishing those individually important things, but also, as it were, the added value of seeing their remembering mind changing in response to those Precisely, things. yes. And I, I hope that that will be a, a richness in No, I, I find it a very pleasing thing about the book, that, that it, it comes at the material, you know, you don't think, oh, he's got it wrong, or why can't he make his mind up? Um, <laughs> you, you, you get precisely that sense of how, how memory um, you know, is changed Quite. by time. And, and there are certain memories which become sort of ossified or petrified, by, by, so that you're, all you're doing is remembering yeah. memories. But here one has the feeling that you're sort of coming at the thing fresh and actually coming up with subtly different yes. recollections. Yes. It doesn't, I mean, our memories don't stay the same, no. do they? Um, and that seems to be a, a point sort of worth making am, among the things that you are actually remembering. I'm very fascinated by, by all that. Yeah. Um, good. I mean, it is, it is a poem about memory. You've extended the story by having a, a, cent, a shorter central section about your yeah. father. That's right. Um, and then there is a, a very surprising 
final section in which the sort of theme of memory um, is given this brilliant twist. I wonder, I mean, would it be worth your just reading that? Shall I just read that, it? That, well, shall I just read it? Section? That will sort of probably... Well, we'll on. see where we are. Yeah, yes, we'll see where we are. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as Alan was saying, at the very beginning of the poem, and this is, as it were, all true, <laughs> my mum put me on a bus, and it was winter time, and I went to see my friend, who in this poem is called Juliet, as in Romeo and, um, and the plan was to go to a party. We did go to the party, but nothing sort of fell out as we, we planned. And the next morning, I stayed over, and the next morning I got on the... Juliet and her mum put me on the bus, and I went back home. Um, and I never saw her again. But when In the Blood came out, which is now 12 years ago, something like that, she wrote to me out of the blue and said that she wanted to meet. And we did meet, not exactly where I meet her in this poem, because for various literary reasons I, I changed it. And this is more or less what happened. Well, essentially it is exactly what happened. It's just that the, her name and the place are different. After 40 years, Juliet emails him. Can they meet? He reads her message again, and again counts 40 years since their first last date, and lamplight sweating on those oak panels in her spare bedroom, magnolia leaves pat patting a leaded window. Four zero, since her slithering black hair, creamy swimmer's shoulders, her big, soft, wide, words still fail him, mouth. He delays answering, a minute is hardly decent. Very well, another, drumming his fingers, then clickety-click at the gallop, and send. St Pancras Station, the booking office bar, which is her idea. He arrives early like a fool, giddy a bit, thanks to his head-back stare at the barrel vault roof and sunsets lilacs and charcoals staining the many-coloured glass. Or are they ghosts of the steam age? At any rate, he expects to kill time, inspecting John Betjeman, coming or going or both, and his flapping bronze Mac, train-spotting the Eurostar, fly-blown chisel face of the future. But Juliet is before him. It must be Juliet, trailing in one hand her overnight wheelie bag, the other clamped to a mobile and why not, husband probably in Paris already or wherever and why not, except his disappointment exists and is frankly scandalous even to him. Juliet, he remembers now, she told him, is wearing dark glasses, very big, black framed, curved, very dark, dark glasses, masking her face as far as possible. That is all he has time for. Bye, she says. That is her first word to the phone, naturally. Bye. As her wheels trundle to a halt, as he imagines himself replying, when in fact he is silent and staring. Not the white hand smuggling her mobile into the slit of a navy overcoat pocket. Not the beautiful black bob, grey at the roots. Not the mouth, thinned under its lipstick twirl. Think of the millions of breaths, the words smoking over her lips. Think of feet wearing down a threshold. He is staring at scars on her face. Scars dicing into her lips, little hairline fractures, glaze cracks, fissures and faults. Not faults, no, scars. What happened? 
These are his first words after 40 years. What happened? Juliet's hair shakes, blooms in a bridling pony toss, then soothes and fits neatly again. Therefore, he pretends he has seen nothing, and with a bluff enthusiasm, which for all she knows is now his natural everyday manner, steers her into the bar of the booking office and ran to a bloody miracle, empty corner table, without another word spoken. In their background, departure times and destinations trudge through watery echoes. In their immediate vicinity, high-gloss woodwork, new oldie England, horse brasses and everyone taking a breather. He follows suit. He orders house white, and the waitress who understands speed is the essence rattles it down in a profoundly nervous silvery ice bucket. Juliet, meanwhile, eases her dark glasses a fraction along her nose and rests them on a pale skin ridge, the main scar there, to hide it. She has no time to waste, and without the least flourish or sidestep, delivers a boiled-down recitative, namely, her life since they last met and parted. Au pair, marriage, two children, girls, living in, freelance, films, documentaries mostly. He shuffles his glass on the tabletop, creased apparently with ghostly cloth wipes, and cannot prevent himself still looking when he thinks she is not looking. At her hair sweetly hooked behind one ear, at her jittery ear stud on its plump little flesh cushion, at her white throat, very white throat, swelling when she swallows in the shadowy collar V of her expensive black silk shirt, at her surprising, forgotten, blunt-tipped, almost square-ended fingers, nails unpainted, milky suns rising from the cuticle. Then his turn, he thinks, but that is not what she came for. She stalls him, she slips off her dark glasses and shows him her white face, naked. If she told him a wildcat launching out of a pine forest, if she told him a lightning strike, a firework, an alleyway bottle-end lunge, if she told him a particularly sharp idea, an idea like a star birthing, the most brilliant idea imaginable, had shattered out of her brain, through her left cheek, engulfed her left eye, and scorched her mouth, he would believe her. But a company car, the M40 late at night, darkness, rain, and roly-poly down the embankment outside High Wickham, High Wickham, which Juliet offers without him asking, he cannot accept, and must. No sooner the wet tarmac rubber smear, the barrier can opened, the mud gouge, the grass rip, the steaming hush and blue dashboard glow, than his mother, of course. His mother in her own seamless flash footage, head shaved gingery bare, tiger slash operation scar, eyes pulpy, bruise mashed, oxygen, tank, tube, mask, oxygen itself, pressing a skeletal finger to pursed lips. Shh. Juliet fills her glass, his glass, but for him, enough. Enough. If he had come with a plan, if he had ever, and he had, he sees that now, in corn yellow soft focus, if he had ever imagined they might, then shame on him. Shame on him, and why not just creep away immediately with his tail and whatever else tucked between his legs? Which Juliet has no time for. She's watching the clock. 
She is insisting her point is not only the accident. Her point is after the accident, she lay unconscious three days. Midwinter fields, no footprint among flint bones and bristly Essex clay lumps, no shadow, the seething snow surface opening and closing its lacy arms. Unconscious, Juliet continues, then awake but not awake awake, not herself, more like a radio dial twiddling, picking on day one a French signal and her voice speaking only French, on day two her voice in English with a French accent, on day three normal, her everyday voice beaming back to her from the spangling gas warps of infinite deep brain space. A waitress at the table adjacent clears cutlery like glittery fish in a handful. He, meanwhile, sponges up what he hears. He wrings out Juliet's languages and squeezes them into his own language, storing them along with the car wreck, the rain, the rain, the rain, the headlights stubbed an embankment plough. Although, as the debris, the confetti windscreen glass, the smashed boxer's face fender, the car radio churning its exciting trash regardless, and, in the midst of it all, Juliet's silence, her scarred face, her unconsciousness, as the combined weight of this groans, creaks, scrapes, sinks, settles and enters his consciousness. He reminds himself, Juliet is not his punishment, not if he chooses. At which point, she arrives at the point that brought her here in the first place. She tells him, at last and suddenly, she can remember nothing of her life before the accident. She explains, having forgotten everything herself, her sister remembered she knew him once. She asks him, what passed, please, between them? She is in his hands, she says. He straightens to meet Juliet's eye, to enter her eye and drop through liquid green-flecked chestnut brown into the dead centre, which is prepared to believe him, which is wasteland, a cat look. I know you. Do I know you? Remind me. He deliberates. He weighs her featherweight weight, and he lets her go. He lets her life go, and Juliet, in their time remaining, barefaced, dressed in her wounds, leans forward to catch what he has to say. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In that mysterious symmetry between the boy's determination to remember everything that had happened before and this complete erasure of her memory, one feels there is some kind of resolution has finally happened. Yes. Um, do, you, do you have the feeling now that you have laid this long and involving story to rest? or Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly don't want to write, write another long poem about it. <laughs> so at least there's that. <laughs> it's been very interesting that. I mean, I, I feel more at peace with them than I did. I have written a few little things about, I mean, now that their ghosts are, are out there, particularly my mum's ghost, often when I'm walking around in Maryland, less in the city, but particularly in the country around Baltimore, I quite often feel that I'm going for a walk with them, mm. her, again, her in particular. But I don't want it to go away entirely. No, I just exactly. want, I mean, all of us, when we're grieving for, for people, what, what we're trying to do really is, to, is, isn't it, to try and find a place in our minds where we can look at these people we love without screaming or bursting into tears. Yes. We don't want to lose them. Yep. We just want to accommodate them yes. somehow. So that I, I think that yeah. did help in that process. Yeah. No, well, it's a magnificent accommodation. Thank you. I'm sure people would like to ask questions. There's a microphone setting off from the back of the nave. Why do you feel that poetry expresses more than if you did the same thing in prose? Because to me, that was just a story. Yes. Well, poems are stories, of course, and they, they can, can be uh, more obviously narrative than not. I mean, there are degrees of, of interpreting how, how that might work. For me, poems have, among the other things that are unique to them, have always been in their compressions and in their rhythms. Not that prose is unrhythmical, but there's a particular way in which poems can be rhythmical, in their opportunity to advertise rhyme or the lack of it. I mean, either formal rhyme schemes or informal rhyme schemes. And in particular, in the way that, in which poetry is able to situate itself, for me anyway, and I think probably for a lot of other poets, at the point at which language that, strictly speaking, makes sense meets an idea of language that doesn't actually make sense in, a, in the way that a newspaper article makes sense. In all, in all those ways that are, are characteristic of what poetry is, they amount to me, and I think to a lot of people, to a means of creating kind of hotline to our strong feeling. Again, plenty of times I, I read fiction, um, indeed non-fiction too, where I, I can be very moved by it, but I feel that poems are sort of quicker about it for me. It's got, yes, I think it essentially is to do with rhythm, really. Rhythm and breath. I find myself saying words to this effect a lot to my students, and I don't mean to sound, as I no doubt will about it, but I mean, I've spent most of my working life talking to students about poetry and trying to make them, as, in a way, as sophisticated readers as I possibly can. But I, I more and more want to say to them, you know, I'll do that with them, and that will be great, and it'll be fun and interesting, and... Um, and they're going to read some absolutely wonderful things. But if they acquire those sophisticated skills and means of interpreting and ever forget that poetry is a very primitive thing to do with pulse and heartbeat and breath, then something has gone wrong. So I try and teach it in a way that 
allows both those things to coexist in the way that we talk about it. And to the extent that it is a primitive thing, that's why I felt I needed to do this as a, as a poem. But you're, it's just a story. That doesn't bother me. I mean, even the most sort of fractured poems tell stories of a sword. No, I understand what you're saying. But, yes. Um, I'm new to poetry. Good. Um, so I'm trying to sort of understand yeah, why quite. I should read poetry rather than books. Yes. Well, only read what you enjoy, you know. <laughs> How do I know? Because the hairs on the back of your neck will stand up. And that's... Um, that last reading was really beautiful, very, very okay. moving. Um, my question is very unliterary. I'm just nosy. Uh, has Julia read the poem, and has she given you a sense of her reaction? I thought you might be her as you said. <laughs> yes, it's, it's me. No, I'm not Julia. Um, and... Yeah, has she given you a sense of the reaction to that, and have you stayed in touch with her? I wish I could say that I had. I mean, we did have this meeting. It was actually a lunch um, in a restaurant in Covent Garden, not a meeting in the St Pancras railway station. Um, very much encouraged by Alan. I steered it away from lunch, because otherwise I thought I was going to be rewriting Christopher Reed's song at lunch. <laughs> so it had to be a different meal. You know, he does lunch. I do early evening drinks. Um, it was a very interesting and intense encounter, as you gather. I can't remember her last name, um, her married name. I can remember her maiden name, but I can't remember her last name. And I took every step that I possibly could to try and track her down on, on the internet and so on, and I just sort of completely failed to find her. I, I regret that. I would love to have given her advance warning of this. In fact, it seems I feel a bit awkward about not having given her advance warning of it. I hope that I think if she were here, she would have already said something, but I hope that one day she, she will be. And, and it hasn't been out for very long, the book, so I still hope that she might come around. Did you, when you met her, actually sort of fill her in on the story of what had happened as she requested? I did. Yes. I did. Um, and everything else that I could remember about the not very many times that we spent together. Yeah. While, while simultaneously thinking that if I was Ian McEwan, I would come to a completely different conclusion <laughs> about what I might do in such a situation. Because it was so full of opportunities to be really sort of devilish. Yes. Um, I mean, not that he's devilish, but you know what I'm trying to say here. I mean, it, I, she, would have had, she would have had to believe whatever I told her. That was an extraordinary feeling. Yeah. So I just told her what had happened, which was kind of nothing, because I was too miserable. But did she know about your mother's? She probably did. Her sister had told her. Yes, her yeah. sister had told her. I'd very much like to give her the book. Uh, you mentioned very briefly earlier that you'd been reading a lot of ancient Greek poetry. I wonder if you could just tell us what you enjoy about that and how it's influenced your own work. Thank you. It's plays. It's the plays, really, I like. Well, and, and Homer. Violence is what I like about it, particularly in Euripides. Un unexplained, abruptly treated violence. And I mean, I'm sure that I know there are people in the room who know more about this than I do. So I, I mean, you were saying you've come quite recently to poetry. I, I'd read quite a lot of ancient Greek stuff way back, but there's a lot that I didn't read. So I've come to it very, a lot of it very late. And what I'm particularly interested in in Euripides is the way he just, it seems so modern, the, the way he just, sort of, these appalling things, often very catastrophic things happen. And he just kind of closes the book at the end and wanders off and writes another play. There's almost no sense of resolution and roundedness. So I'm, I'm very keen on, on that. 
They feel as though they were, they were written this morning. Amazing. And I've always very much liked reading Homer, who, who hasn't, but I've become particularly interested in him lately, the, the scale of the thing, the, the, the relationship between hurrying forward and slowing down, and I feel that's been very interesting. To, and I feel there's a lot for me to learn about that. The Iliad is, I mean, I, I read the Iliad more than I read the Odyssey. I like thinking about the kind of balmy, blocked, stuck craziness of those people. I mean, all of them hacking their way through other human beings, clearly all suffering from what we would call PTSD, Achilles particularly, trying to, and watching Homer, trying to punctuate that absolutely barbaric, stuck, violent state of play with passages of beauty which have to look outside the theatre of war to create a kind of counterbalance in it. Again, I mean, I'm saying all this in a very sort of amateur way, but that's what I like about it. Um, and again, back to the narrative point, living in their world. I mean, dealing with something that's long enough to, to lose yourself in and be, be immersed in. And you have written long poems before, but I have long narrative poems, but for quite long. I mean, it was I think that sort of the time when. We were living in Oxford, that yeah. sort of developing an interest in the narrative. Yes. And I think there was rather a, a revival of interest in the narrative yeah. poem at that time in the late Quite. 70s and early yeah, 80s. Yeah, I think there was. Um, I have always been very interested in it. Um, I think I was very impressed very early on by that remark of John Keats's where he's talking about when he's trying to write Endymion and, and not doing very well with it, um, but kind of doggedly going on and just getting the thing done. And he says, a long poem is a test of the invention. And among other things, that is what, what I feel about it. You can kind of measure you, something in yourself by committing yourself to writing at, at length, mixed with kind of novelist envy, obviously. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.